Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. As I continue to get to know you and uh, you continue to get to know me a little bit better, I just want to give you uh, insight into the way that my mind works. Uh, this morning I, I had the uh, opportunity to come into the sanctuary very early, and when I left this week, this was not here. And um, two things came to my mind when I walked in. First, I had this incredible urge. I, I live in a home with, with young children to come up and to run through this because in my house that would happen. Yeah, some of you relate to that. But then uh, I thought, man, Laura uh, must have put a ton of work into doing that. And so then maybe I thought it'd be more appropriate to have a game of Jenga. And uh, so I don't know. I still look at it today and it's fun. It's exciting. Operation Christmas Child is as indeed a wonderful ministry and something that uh, we're excited about here at Calvary Monuments. So as you have opportunity to put those boxes together, uh, we would ask you to, to do that and to look in your bulletin to find out how you can contribute to that ministry. We have been spending a lot of time in the scriptures in the book of John over the last few weeks and last few months. And we're continuing in our study of the book of John this morning. And uh, we've looked at the magnificence of the word way back in the beginning in John chapter 1. We looked at the testimony of John the Baptist and, and how that fit into bringing the, the witness of Jesus into the world. We, we looked at how the world received Jesus, and when he came to earth, we, we looked at how Jesus called his first disciples uh, to himself. And then in John chapter 2, we turned and we saw the, the first miracle of Jesus, turning water into wine. And, and finally, last week, we opened up John chapter 3, and we looked at the first part of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in, in verses 1 to 15. And, and what we have seen in John 1, 2, and 3 throughout our first uh, month together and more as we've seen the faithfulness of God really in, in the person and what he did through Jesus and the condition of man and who we are. And as we look at these things, we're studying the book of John in light of the reason for why John wrote his book. And John is, is one of the books that gives us clear reference as to why he wrote. It says this in John chapter 20, 31, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so today we're going to continue in our study, and we have the opportunity today, friends, to explore and unpack what is probably one of the most precious, one of the most memorized verses uh, in all of Scripture. And we're going to look at John chapter 3, uh, verses 16 to 21. And our goal today is that we might witness God's great love for us, our great love of sin, and God's great work in our lives in a way that might cause us to believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So as you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father God, we are thankful for the gifts and the talents of many who you've placed in this congregation as we got to witness some of those gifts and talents before us just moments ago. The blending of melodies and harmonies and the use of music and how you use music in such a powerful way in our lives to have us bring glory and honor to you. And we're thankful for that time that we spend on Sunday morning worshiping you through music and through song. And Father, now we, we come to another corporate activity that we practice on Sunday morning together, and, and that's the study of your word. And as we open your word together, Lord, we, we know your word to be powerful. We know your word to be active and your word to be living. And Father, we know that you, through the Spirit, 
will use your word to convict us, to help us to change and help us to grow. And so, Father, it's with that anticipation that we come together as a body of Christ this morning to open your word, to study it together, and to see what you may have for us, that we might grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, remember the context of where we're at in John chapter 3. Jesus is, is in the second part of his discussion uh, with Nicodemus. And we paused last week in fi verse 15, but we're going to pick up here. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus the love of God. And so if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 and look at God's great love for us in those verses. It says this in John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the question that we might ask ourselves as we come to the conclusion of verses 16 and 17 in our text is why did God send his Son? Why did he do this? This is it's an important action. It's, it's one that we, that we worship and we celebrate today in the church, this reality that God sent his son. But we wonder, why did he do it? And verses 16 and 17 give us two specific reasons. And the first reason is this. God sent his son in John 3.16 to demonstrate his love towards us. He sent his son to demonstrate his love to us. Remember, this is coming at the end of John chapter 3, verse 15, where Jesus was just finishing telling Nicodemus that he must become like a snake. And remember, we answered the question last week, how is Jesus like a snake? And if you remember going back to the book of Numbers, the, the people in the camp, they were being bitten by snakes, and the snake was made and put up on a pole, and anyone who looked at it would be healed from their bite. And the same with Jesus, who would be put on a cross, and anyone who looked unto him would find their salvation. And what John chapter 3 verse 16 is doing is it's grounding the sacrifice of Jesus in the love of God. God gave his son because, friends, he loves us. He desires for us to believe in him so that we will not perish but experience eternal life. Quite simply, Jesus' death, life, resurrection, all testify to the love of God. For his people. And as I looked at this this week and I began to think about the depths of God's love, it really became apparent to me that there's four measures of God's love. I'm sure that there's more and we could probably sit here today and come up with more, but four measures in particular stuck out to me over the course of humanity and God's love for us and how great it is. And the first measure is this the first measure of the depth of God's love is simply the creation. Right? We look around the world that, that we live in and everything that we see is here because of the Lord. And somebody said to me, uh, I was just talking, Spring and Larry, welcome back. I was just talking to Spring. That was a God conversation on the way in. And, and they had an opportunity to travel and go visit different parts of the country. And Spring made the comment, I don't know how anyone could not believe in a God after what they saw. And we look around the glory of the creation and how beautiful it is and wonderful it is and the green. And, 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 you know, we come to the realization God did not have to create. He did not have to do that. But because of his great love for us, he did. And it's, it's an act of love that demonstrates his power because the Bible says that by his word, 
In Genesis chapter 1, by his word, all that came into being came into being. Now, there's a second depth to the love of God. And it's not just that he created the physical things that we see around us, but he also created free beings. He created us. And it's an act of love displaying God's sovereignty. And I say it that way because God is able to create free beings, us, those who sit in this room today. And he's able to do that without even giving up one ounce of control or sovereignty over his creation. And it's amazing because here we sit today and it's a mystery to us about how all of this works together. Yet this particular act of God's love towards us displays God's sovereignty and complete control over his creation. There's a third measure of love that God has for us. Creation of free beings whom he knows will reject him. Now think about that. God didn't have to create, but he did. It was an act of love. And not only did he create, but in his infinite, all-surpassing knowledge, he knows all things perfectly from beginning to the end, past, present, and future. He created free beings whom he knew would reject him. It's an act of love displaying God's grace and God's mercy. I, I was trying to think about how to relate this to us this week as I was looking at, at the scripture. And the only thing I could come up with is, is our children. Or if you have, you know, friends who have children, you look and, and you know, we have, a, we have three children in our home. And people often say, well, you could have stopped at one. <laughs> and, and to be honest, we could have stopped at one. But, but we didn't, even though that one that came occasionally disappoints us and lets us down. You know, and, and you know, he's, he's shocked back there right now. Sorry, he's sitting in the service. It's not just you, Brighton. All of, you know, all of our children. But yet, God, you know... God knew. He knew Adam and Eve. He knew who he created. He knew they would reject him. He knew where they would go. Yet out of his abundant love for us, he still created. Well, there's one more measure of his great love. And it's this. It's the creation of free beings whom he already knew would reject him. And so he provided his son as a sacrifice in order to secure the salvation of those who would believe. And it's an act of God's love displaying his abundant goodness and sacrificial love towards his creation. God is good. Right? Genesis chapter 1 affirms that everything he created at the end was good. It was good. God is a good God and he cares for his creation. He cares for us. And he desires to show us his love. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 8 says this, that while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in John 3.16, we not only find this great proclamation concerning God's love, but John also gives us insight into understanding the scope of that love. The love of God for us is deep. We sing this song when we're little in Sunday school. It's deep, but it's also what? Wide. For God so loved the world. And so the scope, the, the, the breadth of God's love, the depth of God's love is immense, and the breadth and the width of God's love is equally immense. 
And in Jesus, the ultimate manifestation of God's love would show to be available to more than just the nation of Israel. Yes, Jesus was available to the nation of Israel, but he'd also be available to the world, to all of the nations. And so where previously in the Old Testament we saw God acting in ways to protect and to preserve his chosen people, the Israelites, now we would find God acting in one very powerful and definitive way to display his glory and his love towards the entire world. God's great love for the world caused him to give something magnificent that would bring him glory by proving his faithfulness to the generations. And Jesus was perfectly suitable and fully capable to completely demonstrate the great love that the Father had for the world. And friends, in Jesus we find the perfect sacrifice, one without sin, completely obedient to the will of the Father, powerfully displaying authority over the ruler of this world system as he endured temptation after temptation in the desert. As we continue our study in John, we're going to find areas where Jesus miraculously shows his power over sickness, his power over blindness, his power over nature, human resource, and distance. Taking on the sins of humanity, the world's, the world's curse, bearing it all on the cross as it was his Father's will, even to the point where the Father had to turn his face away as he hung. And yet we find in the scriptures, the Bible teaches us it was the pleasure of God to crush him. Wrap that around our minds. And the immensity and the depth of the scope of God's love just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And so in John 3.16, we find the action was love. The scope of the love was the world. The result of that love was the giving of his son Jesus. And the purpose of that love was that whomever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so one of the questions that kept kind of rolling around in my mind this week is why is John 3.16 one of the most loved and memorized verses in all of the Bible? Right? I can remember as a young child, maybe you can remember as a young child being brought to church, going to church, and one of the first verses that you're supposed to memorize or that you're taught to memorize when you're young is John 3.16. And some of us in here might have us memorized in three or four different versions of the Bible. I don't know about you, but if I memorized it in the NIV and I went to a church that was doing the King James, I didn't get credit for saying it in the NIV. So I had to memorize it in the King James and all the different versions. And we have this verse, it's tucked away in your heart, it's so precious. Why? I think there's four reasons here, friends. One, in it we see the great love of God revealed to his people. But two, the scope of God's love is so clearly communicated for God so loved the world. And the result of God's love for us is on display in the giving of his one and only son. And finally, the purpose for the giving of his son is revealed to us so that we might believe, not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, John 3.16 gives us assurance that we can share with the world that we have a God who has loved us. He has made himself available to us. He has not left us to our own devices. He has not abandoned us. He's not left us in darkness, but he's spoken to us. He's called to us. And we could live in John 3.16, and we probably should live in John 3.16 and revisit it over and over and over again because we find a God who is good, loving, and trustworthy. Now remember that 
All of that in verse 16 was to answer the first reason as to why God sent his son. The first reason God sent his son was to demonstrate his love towards us. But there's a second reason that God sent his son. It's in verse 17. So if you still have your Bibles open to John 3, look at verse 17 of our text. This is the second reason that God sent his son so that he might save us through him. John chapter 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What a great truth. What a great reality that God, he didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And, and we read that today and we amen that and we affirm that as a congregation and as a church. Yet we see sadly throughout our world there's this misperception that's evident about God. And I don't know if you've witnessed it, I've witnessed it, maybe you've seen it in the workplace, maybe you've seen it in, in your neighborhood, maybe in your communities, maybe even in your family, but there's this idea out there that, that somehow God revels in the tormenting of man. There's this idea out there that God is some cosmic killjoy, that he's waiting in heaven with some fly swatter, and any time we make a mistake or mess up, smack, you know? And, 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 and just this... This blame, complaining, pressing all of our problems, all of our anxieties on God, blaming him. And, and yet John chapter 3, 17 tells us that he, he loved the world and sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God does not revel in our pain, friends. He finds no joy in it. God's love is tender. He cares for us as a shepherd would care for his sheep. And, and yes, it's true, God uses our pain to produce something beautiful in us, something that is for our good and for his glory, but, but it's not just that. He also cares for us in our pain. He cares for us there. Verse 17 confirms it was not God's intention in his great act of love to bring condemnation on humanity. God did not have to send Jesus to bring condemnation, friends, because condemnation was already here. It came upon the fall, and it came with the revealing later on of the law that came to Moses. Remember John chapter 1, verse 17, we looked at a few weeks back, it said, Moses gave the law, and, and we saw the law to be inefficient, yet effective for a time, but grace and truth would come through Jesus. The law had an effect. The law had a purpose, friends, but the purpose of the law, the greatest purpose and the greatest effect was to show us our own inability, to show us our own inability to save ourselves. The law shows us that by our own hands, we can never measure up. It is a purpose that was overlooked by Nicodemus, by many of the religious leaders of the day, but it's affirmed in the scriptures. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this. The letter kills. It's talking about the law. This is 3, 6. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now look at what it says about the ministry of the law in verse 7. The ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So it had some purpose and some effect, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory. 
indeed uh, at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. I'm going to continue in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, the ministry of condemnation was already presiding over the people. John 3.16, John 3.17, why did Jesus send His Son to save the world? Jesus was bringing in a, a new period of ministry. Salvation for the world was at hand. And only through Jesus would the condemnation that comes through the law and that comes through sin and death, be taken away. And this, friends, allows us to live with bold confidence because we can now, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord as we have been transformed into the same image from one degree to another. And so as we sum up John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God sends His Son to demonstrate His great love for us and to save us. Both of those actions ultimately bring glory to Him. God is glorified in the demonstration of His love towards us, and He is also glorified in the way that He saves us through His Son, Jesus. But what was the result of God's great act of love towards His people? What was the result of that love? Look down at your text in verse 18. Verse 18 gives us the answer. Verse 18 of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 18 shows us the, that the result of God's great love, great act of love towards his people, was that there was a division, friends. In this verse, we see there's a division between those who are not condemned and division between those who are condemned, two groups of people. So why is the first group not condemned? And the first group's not condemned because of their belief. And we might look at that and we might say, okay, well, that's something that we achieved. But we have to go back to previous teaching. We have to go back and remember that if we sit here today and we're believing, we're not believing because of some great work on our own part, some great thing that we've done. We're believing because we've been born again, because God's revealed our need for Jesus to us. And he's caused us to be born again. We're believing because of that. The object of the belief is also important. Look at what the text says. Belief in the name of the only Son of God. That object of belief is important as well. Why is the second group condemned, we might ask? Especially if Jesus did not come to bring condemnation. Why is this second group of individuals condemned? Well, it's further evidence of the condemning result of the law and the condemning result of sin and death. Those who do not believe, friends, are already condemned because in Adam, the scriptures tell us that all men have sinned. And we know that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is 
death. Friends, those who are condemned are condemned because the object of their faith is misplaced. They've put their faith in themselves and their own ability to clean themselves up and rescue themselves and not in the one and only Son of God. Now, as we continue in our text this morning and move to verses 19 and 20, Jesus is going to change the language of his discourse here with Nicodemus. He's going to get into more kind of legal language here. And he's going to begin to talk about, uh, he's going to move from talking about God's love of man to the judgment which is upon humanity, which is going to reveal our great love of sin. So John chapter 1, 2, and 3 has shown us that our God is defined by love and power and that God expresses this love and power through the person of Jesus. And now in verses 19 and 20, we will see what truly defines man and what truly lies in our heart. And we'll see how man expresses his true nature apart from God. Look down at verses 19 and 20 as we look at our great love of sin. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Friends, the judgment is this. The light came, but the people rejected the light in favor of their love of darkness. Now, I'll tell you something sad. Years ago, I remember in, in youth ministry, I was still a youth pastor at the time, I had a student come to me at church, and he, he was having problems with his parents. And he was asking me, he, he continued to do things in his life that were disappointing his parents. And it was driving a wedge between him and his relationship with his parents. And it was creating separation in their home and, and great consternation. His parents had come to me, and he had come to me. And, and on many occasions, and this one in particular, he came and, and he wanted me to give him advice. Pastor, what should I do? How can I, how can I stop letting my parents down? How can I stop behaving in this manner and stop doing this? How can I regain their trust? And I could tell what he wanted me to give him was like a five-step plan. Go home and, and do A, B, C, D, E, and, and mom and dad will be happy. And, and maybe because that, in my weakness, in my youthfulness, and not understanding the scriptures, perhaps that's what I had done before with him. I had given him a five-step plan or a program, take this, try this, put this in place, see if this works. But in that moment, for whatever reason, I remember where I was in the church, in the room, I really felt that I needed to talk to him about Jesus. And so I started talking to him about Jesus and about how his relationship with Jesus could change his relationship with his parents. If he started focusing more on his love of Christ and on Christ's love towards him, that it could completely revolutionize the relationship he had with his parents. That Jesus could change his heart. And as we talked about that and got deeper in the conversation, friends, it's sad. He became more and more distant. Distant. Like he didn't, like, like he didn't understand or he didn't want to hear. And, and I don't know how to explain it, but, but I'm sure many of you feel this way. There are people in your life who you have very deep, meaningful conversations with. There are people in your life who you can talk to about just about anything. There are people in your life who re reveal things to you that they would never talk to about anything with anybody else. But when you begin to talk with them about Jesus, the conversation changes and shifts. 
Or perhaps you know, in sitting there and listening with them and spending time with them, perhaps you know that you cannot even bring up the name of Jesus because it'll cause the conversation to go in a different direction. And friends, it goes back to these verses in 19 and 20. The light, Christ, who will always be uncomfortable for those who are satisfied living in darkness. The light will always make uncomfortable those who are satisfied living in darkness. The name of Jesus does not allow people to live comfortably. I was at a dinner one time and, and there was public prayer and the pastor, uh, they had invited the pastor to pray before people in public and he was, he was up in front and he prayed and at the end of his prayer he said, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And a person I overheard saying, I wish he wouldn't have said Jesus. Why? I, I don't get it. We can say God in our culture to anyone and anything and it's okay, even acceptable, anywhere you go. But to say the name of Jesus, something goes along with that. We look around our world today, friends, and around every corner, up around every bend in the road, we find brokenness. Sometimes I feel like I blink, and when my eyes are open, something new is broken. A new relationship, a new thing on TV, uh, like government going on, political. Uh, it's just crazy. And there's all sorts of crazy things going on, and we lift the veil that covers all that pain and that hides all that hurt. And that keeps out the light. And I think what we see, folks, is that we live in a culture that has major relationship issues. We don't know how to love each other well. And we aren't loving each other well. Our selfishness and our pride are producing brokenness and separation in our relationships. And it's everywhere. Friends, we can look across the scope of our nation and our world, and we can see the symptoms of a sick society that's forgotten how to love and has not only forgotten how to love, but we ourselves have rejected being loved. And should it come as a surprise to us, the great sacrifice provided by God, the revelation that is Jesus, his love for humanity has been swept out of the public arena. The one great definitive act of love that should serve as an example to all people, to all the world, has been cast aside in favor of humanity's weak and broken understanding of love. And friends, I, I want to ask you this question. How far has our understanding of love brought us? Would anyone in this room say that we're loving each other better today than we were 25 or 30 years ago? Would anyone in here argue that we are a more kinder, more hospitable, more caring community of neighbors, bearing one another's burdens? Would anybody argue that we're better at that today than in previous generations? What's the difference, friends? In the name of fairness, that's the big catchword today that we hear everywhere, right? In the name of fairness, would you say that we're a more fair culture and community today than we were 25 to 30 years ago? Or are we more divided than ever? In the name of equality, which is another big catchword in our culture today, would you say that our nation looks more equal today than it did 25 to 30 years ago? Or is there more inequality today than there has ever been? What's changed, friends? What's changed? Even in this sanctuary this morning and in this church this morning, we have two generations that have been raised very, very differently. And we have a generation that was raised to hide the word of God in their hearts, 
to revere the things of God, to hold close to his example, to follow and persevere in it. We have uh, folks in here, and I'm sure many of you can affirm, that remember having a time in school every day where you prayed. Some of you folks in here can remember that. We have a group of folks that in here probably can remember there was a time in the classroom where you would actually, your teacher would actually teach you something from the Bible. Like it was part of the curriculum. Friends, it's not the generation I was lived in, I was raised in. It's not the generation that many in here were raised in. Today we're living in the just do it if it feels right generation. Whatever it might be, you can do it, you define it, you control it, it's up to you. Truth has become relative. That anchor that once grounded us in love has been cut. And we're floating adrift trying to define for ourselves what love looks like and what love is when Jesus has given us a clear definition of love in his son Jesus in John chapter 3. We have a generation that's defining God as either oppressive or non-existent, removing his name from every public sphere, cowering, wallowing, hiding in darkness, believing that our way is better than his way. And friends, there's a reason. Look back down at verse 17 in your text. It says, the reason is because their deeds were evil. There's shame. There's guilt. And, and all of the symptoms we see, church, what we look at, and, and, and this could just be this weird pastor's opinion. I'm sorry if it is. Again, put an asterisk next to it and say weird pastor. All right? But listen, I, I, I truly believe our, our world does not have a problem with gender identity. Our world does not have a problem with marriage equality, with race, with abuse of authority, with sexual misconduct, the Me Too movement, economic inequality, social inequality, illegal immigration, and we could go on and on and on. Friends, those are symptoms of a greater problem, and it's the same problem that's been in our world since the beginning of time. Our world has a problem with sin. And the problem is identified right here in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we love the darkness more than the light because our deeds were evil. And what was true all the way back in John chapter 3 is still as sure and true today as it was all the way back then. And the sad reality that we find is this. We have a God who loves us, who's displayed his great love towards us, who sacrificed his son for us, and yet we still find that we like to chase after sin and live in the darkness. And if we're asking why, if you're sitting here today and you're wondering, why is this? I mean, I do, I ask that. Why? Because we do it still today. Even as believers, we find ourselves going the ways that we know we shouldn't go. And we ask ourselves, why? The reasons presented in verse 20 of John chapter 3, if you look down at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. And here's why lest his works should be exposed. Apart from Jesus, friends, we're desperate to keep our works hidden. Our love for the darkness forces us to hide because the light of Jesus exposes our deeds and our deeds do not and cannot measure up. We're guilty. I'm guilty. Our lives have not reflected his glory and goodness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. We're completely and utterly lost with no 
desire for our works to be exposed because we don't want the world to see our guilt, our shame, our fear, our inadequacy. Our greatest fear, friends, is that the light will expose us for who we truly are. And we're terrified of who we are because the light exposes us to the reality that we don't measure up. And we're completely unable to clean ourselves up. Look at verse 20 again. It's not, that, it's not just that the light disturbs or frustrates us. You know, I am disturbed and frustrated on Sunday afternoon when I'm watching football and the, there's a glare on my TV screen. That, that, that frustrates me and disturbs me. And so I get up and I close a blind, okay? But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the strongest word possible. It's they hate, a hatred, friends, of the light. The empires of sin that we're living in prior to Jesus are far too precious to us. And we don't want to lose our grip on that which we falsely believe that we control. And as hopeful as verses 16 and 18 were, and those were fun verses, right? Verses 16, no wonder we want to live in those. Those are hopeful. Verses in 19 and 20, they leave us. This isn't fun, folks. They leave us desperate. And think about, now remember the context. Nicodemus is standing here talking to Jesus. Jesus is communicating with him. His heart has been exposed. Judgment has been levied against him. Can you imagine the weight that's on Nicodemus in this moment? I think maybe many of us that have come to Christ in this sanctuary, many of us remember that very moment in our lives. I remember it years ago at Rollinsville camp meeting. I was sitting in a pew. There was an evangelist speaking. There was probably 250 to 300 people there, but I might as well have been the only person. You remember that night for some of you that came to Christ? You remember that moment, what it was like when all of a sudden you were brought face to face with the reality of who you were and the amazing reality of God's great love for you in spite of who you were? And I was sitting in a pew with friends. To this day, I still can't tell you how I got to the altar. I believe they saw how disturbed I was and they lifted me out of the row and brought me down to the altar. And the weight was lifted. And Jesus took it. And and praise God, absolutely, to Him be the glory. And some of us remember what that felt like to have that heavy weight removed the moment that Jesus called us and drawed us to Himself. Friends, apart from God, there is only spiritual death. Verses 19 and 20 describe what it looks like. A love of darkness, practicing evil works, performing wicked deeds, desperately trying to hide so that our deeds are not exposed by the most hated light. And if this seems desperately hopeless, it absolutely is. And we sit in utter helplessness, wallowing in the mud and the sin and the darkness. And guess what, church? It is the very place where Jesus has come to find each and every one of us who are his. It's where he found us. It's where he found us in that place. Listen to to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 4 to 10, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is where God found us, friends. And let's glance with hopeful eyes to the final and hopeful verse of our text today. Verse 21, revealing God's great work in man. Verse 21 says this, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And again, friends, as we look at this last verse in our text today, we're confronted with division again. The, the one in darkness hides his work. The one who does what is true steps into the light so that the world might see that his works have been wrought of God. One group finds glory in themselves. One group finds glory in their God who demonstrated his great love towards them by sending his son to die for them. Friends, the testimony of our lives, when, when people come to us and people see us, our neighbors, at our job sites, in our homes, with our families and our friends and the people that God's bringing into our lives, if they look at us and they wonder why we live with such great thankfulness, if they look at us and they wonder why we have such great joy, if they look at us and they see, my goodness, all the craziness on cable news networks, how can you have this kind of hope? When they look at us and they ask these questions, the one resounding sentence that should ring true in our lives is by His power. By His power. Because, friends, you know and I know that we can't do it by our own. We cannot do it by our own. I weary myself trying to do it by my own. I do. And, and I fall into that trap trying to do this life and this world on my own power, and I can't. I give up. Everyone who comes into contact with, with us that, that sees anything good in our lives should be responded with the sentence, God did this. God did this. The lover of truth, friends, magnifies the Father. The one who loves the light is truly thankful for the grace of the Father who called him from darkness into the light. So the question that we ask ourselves every week and we might ask ourselves this morning is how should our lives look in light of these realities? How should our lives look in light of these realities? Friends, the love of God is perfectly revealed in Jesus and has produced the work of salvation in our lives. God's work in our lives through Jesus was magnificently powerful to overcome our love of sin and to save us from the death that we so deserved. And, and I've, I've, said this again, I've said this up here many times, and I told the first service, and I'll tell you, so you can all come to me one day and say, stop asking us that question. But I'm going to say it over and over and over again because it's so important. It is such an important point of application in our lives when it comes to how we demonstrate that love to others outside of these walls. And it's just a simple question. Are you thankful? Are you thankful for what Jesus has done? And, 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 and is the testimony of our lives and are the actions of our lives pointing people to see that we're thankful for the great work that he's done on our behalf? Our lives should be lived in gratitude for the great love that we have been shown 
And as a church, we should be deeply invested in showing that gratitude to all who God brings in our lives. And together today, family, church, we can practice that gratitude by taking part in communion together as a body of Christ. And we're going to do that this morning. Communion, friends, is an opportunity for us to remember, to celebrate, and to reflect the gratitude for the great love that Jesus has had on our behalf. And as our ushers prepare this morning and, and go to the back and prepare to come forward, the communion table at Calvary Monument is available for all who claim to know Jesus as their Savior. If you're here today as a visitor and, and have never began a relationship with Jesus, or you're here today as a regular attender and have never began a relationship with Jesus, and we would ask that you just allow the elements of the bread and the juice to just pass by. Now, would you take a moment as our ushers come this morning to pray with me in silence, examining our hearts and confessing our sins and preparing to receive 